0: Let us turn, if you will, uh, to Second uh, First Kings. Excuse me, First Kings, chapter ten. First Kings ten. We're doing chapters ten through sixteen, and the message tonight is called Jesus Inc. Question mark. Inc is like short for Incorporated. Obviously, you would see if you saw it, you would know that. But I have to explain that. <laughs> so Jesus Inc. Question mark. Here at Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks also known affectionately as Sunday Night Bible Study we may not have presidents or CEOs with gigantic vision and expert people directing communication who oil a well run machine we may not have that but we do have pastors. We do have pastors who know sheep and know how to feed them. We may not have a system to attract customers, but we do have food to feed sheep with. We may not follow a business plan, foolproof for X number of growth and fruitfulness, but we do follow the Holy Spirit. And we may not sell a product or a brand, but we do preach the word of God. And we may not, this is absolutely no stab to the people who are on stage behind me a minute ago, but we may not have concert quality music, but we do have worship worthy music. In some, we may not be a corporation, but we are a community. Uh, we may not be the best community. We may not be your primary community. We may not even be your typical community. But we are a community that seeks to offer to you fellowship over dinner, worship, prayer, The word of God through Bible study and communion. And that, as I see scripture, is what we are meant to gather for. Okay. I say all of this. I say all of this because we desire that you are drawn to Jesus. We desire that you are drawn to Jesus and not to us, not to our name, not to our vision but that you are drawn to Jesus. (laughs) Kind of an interesting opening. This is going somewhere. I'm sure most of you trust that by now, but um... I feel though that as I read this passage of the Bible, it stuck out to me as perhaps the best time to say something that I've noticed as a trend in our culture and that is that the church has been so insecure for so many years, feeling like they're losing as if it was a game to win, that we have gone to the world for the gimmicks and the tricks and the methods and the strategies in order to boost our message and image. In short, we have developed Jesus Inc. And we have a resource of marketing and consumerism to throw at people. In short, uh, what I had started off with, I'm not a CEO or a business guy. And I don't get it. I don't get how to do that. But I, I do not promise to have a product with a lifetime warranty. I mean, the gospel says it's pretty good, but I don't think that it's something for me to shove at you, to sell as a gimmick, to corner you with. I think it's here. And if you're hungry, you're going to eat. Um, I don't have a business plan, but I do think the Holy Spirit is present in our midst. I say these things because... Um, It's become, it's become very, um, trendy to market Jesus and to sell him as something that you can consume. You are, you are the customer and you have a problem and there's a corporation that has a product that will meet your need and they just call it the gospel. They call it Jesus, but that's the goal is to lure you in with it so that you feel happier, you see some instant results, you see the things that Americans try to measure as success and progress. Um, and, and of course, this comes with a huge footnote. It's great when churches grow. It's fantastic. And it it's fantastic when Jesus is well-known and he's being spread. That's good stuff, because that's good news that we want to share. But if we feel like... <laughs> Um, everything becomes performance and everything becomes come see us, come see us I think people can lose sight of Jesus and see the messenger and I just want to make it really clear that as we look at this passage it is our heart that you are drawn to Jesus and not us you, you are drawn to Jesus in everything we do so let's look at Solomon the wisest man on earth for a time 1 Kings 10, verse one Let's get right into what happens here. Now, when the king of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of Yahweh, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with very great retinue, and that's with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones and when she came to Solomon she told him all that was on her mind and Solomon answered all her questions there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendants of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of Yahweh, there was no more breath in her. What? This is a powerful woman. She's the queen of a nation in Africa. She comes to see Solomon, This is David's son, the next king of Israel, in reigning in his glory and his might. And she comes and she has no breath left in her. She is that impressed. Just that (gasps) And she said to the king, verse six, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and, uh, and um, until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. In other words, I heard rumors of your greatness, and we all know how room, you know—the fish started this big, and then you know, ten times later, it's it's the size of this stage. I, I heard the rumors. But even the half of them were not true. So rumors could not catch up to the wealth and majesty and splendor that Solomon was producing. That's how great he is. Yikes. Your wisdom and your prosperity has surpassed the report that I heard. Verse eight, happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be Yahweh, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because Yahweh loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. This is amazing. The queen of Sheba comes and is blown away by him. She comes after this happens. We're going to go back to last week's passage a little bit. Look at chapter 8 with me. In chapter 8, Solomon has built the temple. And it has been dedicated. And now to open up its opening. Redundant, but sorry. (laughs) To launch the opening of the temple he launches into this prayer and he prays lengthy but in verse 41 of chapter 8 this prayer sticks out to me 841 likewise when a foreigner who is not of your people israel comes from a far country for your namesake For they shall hear of your great name, and your mighty hand, and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, when the foreigner comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. In order that all the peoples of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel." and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Solomon is opening up Israel's temple before Israel and praying before them, please send the foreigner, send the person all the way from Babylon to Shiva. Send them here to worship before you. And what happens in chapter 10, we saw that the queen of a foreign nation comes, doesn't she? Solomon's prayer is being answered. Jerusalem has finally become that city that is set on a hill and the nations are coming to find the God that they have lost. This is why God elevated and raised Solomon in all of his splendor, his wealth and his wisdom is so that this light set upon a hill would bring the nations to finally return to their true maker. This is what God told Abraham he would do through him. Remember Genesis 12? That after the Tower of Babel was built, and God scattered the builders because they built it with this in mind, come let us make a name for ourselves throughout all the earth. God scatters that project, and then he calls Abraham and says, forget them and their business plan. For you, I want to choose you, and I want you to have a family that will become a nation, and through that nation, I want to bless all the nations of the earth. And so finally, one of Abraham's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren You can go count it if you want. I'm not sure how many it is, but it's one of the great grandchildren. Solomon takes the throne of this kingdom, and now he is the gateway to bless all the nations. So he builds the temple, and people start to come. Please tell me that reminds you of a field of dreams. All right. But now look at chapter 11, verse 1. They keep coming. They keep coming. The nations are coming. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Those those are women of the nations. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, that was his first wife, he also had wives of the Moabite, the Ammonite, the Edomite, the Sidonian, Hittite women, and from nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had a modest 700 wives, I added modest. Princesses and 300 concubines, which are half-wives. They're not quite wives, but they are locked in. They can't go elsewhere. So that's a 1,000. Now, you can meditate on this for a long time and come up with all kinds of jokes about the life Solomon must have led, (laughs) including how many, how do they do the name tag distribution? Um... But that's not the point. I, I think most of us are good, understanding that it's not good to marry. Have two wives at once, that's just not a good game plan. But see, the point that our narrator is telling us is the end of verse 3, that these wives turned Solomon's heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his god as was the heart of David his father for Solomon went after Ashtoreth the goddess of the Sidonians and after Milcom the abomination of the Ammonites so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and did not wholly follow Yahweh as David his father had done um then to take it one more step in verse 7 so Solomon built a high place. A high place simply refers to um, a temple or a sacred site built on a high place, because you wanted to, a, a light set upon a hill, if you will. You want people to see it, so they go worship there. So he built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. That's the Mount of Olives, if you know Jerusalem. If you don't, it's okay. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Okay, so you have two episodes here of King Solomon. In the first episode, chapter 10, he's wealthy, he's wise. A foreigner comes to him because of what they hear Yahweh is doing in this kingdom. It's the kingdom of God on earth. And they marvel at what Solomon um, has done. And you notice that the queen of Sheba was also brought to the temple. So she, among many things, marveled over Solomon, but also the temple that he had built. She went there. But then in chapter 11, it's similar. More foreign women come. They come to Solomon, but it's a bit different. Solomon's no longer wise, he's foolish. They come because he's wealthy. They come because they get to marry up, I guess, I mean, if you like wealth. But what we see is the complete opposite. Solomon does not take them to see the temple that he built for God to worship there, to bring sacrifice. Instead, Solomon builds for them their own temple so that they can worship their gods and keep their way of life. Solomon prays that the nations would come and they come. He succeeds early, he fails later. Why the difference? I would suggest to you, it's found in between. Chapter 10. Look at toward the end of chapter 10. Look at 10, verse um, Well, we'll start in 23. So 10:23. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Verse 24 reinforces what we've already seen. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon so that Jerusalem, in a sense, became the center of the world. The kingdom of God, the kings of the earth, were bringing their glory to it. That's a pretty cool picture. They came to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put Into his mind. Every one of them brought his presents. Articles of silver and gold. Garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules. So much year by year. But it turns in verse 26. And this is where we see it lead to chapter 11 where he fails. Verse 26 we read, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen he had 1400 chariots 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem I need you to process that for a minute he had chariot cities I mean America has a couple cities that like devoted things like we have Motor City that's kind of not what it used to be anymore but Detroit was known as like the car city Solomon had horse cities Who's the mayor of your town? <laughs> like this four-legged furry animal. People who worked with horses populated the cities, and the cities were devoted to horses. That's pretty crazy. That's how many horses he had? Those horse cities. And then uh, we read in verse twenty-seven, and the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. You got to see our new driveway. It's made of silver. And it's going to be great when we plow it cuz it's not going to scratch because it's really good material and like you're boasting to your neighbors, I got a silver driveway and like silver was so last year, dude. Gold's the thing now. Like everybody has silver. We pave with silver. We yeah, that's just it's just a ridiculous notion that silver is as common as stone. This is the kind of wealth that is there. Verse 28. And Solomon's import of horses, so we're back to horses, was from Egypt and Q, and the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so, through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, you read, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Then it dovetails. So what we're seeing in there is that Solomon is directly disobeying three commands that God gave to the kings of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 and on. Deuteronomy 17 said that when you have a king, he must not multiply for himself these three things, Can you guess what those three things are? The three things in the text we just read. You shall not multiply for yourself horses. And then it said especially from Egypt. I saw the word Egypt in there with horses. You shall not multiply for yourself wives. Guess what it said? For they will turn your heart away. And third, you shall not multiply for yourselves an excess of gold and silver. Yeah, Solomon has such an excess of silver that it is now used to pave driveways and walkways with. Solomon has failed in the three things God told Israel's kings not to do. You will not be a king like the other nations. This is my kingdom, and you're not to be like those nations or like those kingdoms. So this is what you shall not do. But Solomon does them. And as a result, we see his heart is turned away and he becomes Foolish, Rather than leading the foreigners and the nations and the outsiders and people seeking, what is it about your city that makes you different, that makes this kingdom so desired? What is it about this place? Rather than saying, well, it's because we house the living God of heaven and earth right here in this temple. Rather than bringing them to the temple, he brings them to, hey, welcome to my playground. Disneyland's happy to host you. What would you like me to build as the next attraction? Rather than this becoming a worship center, it becomes a marketing center for consumers. And this is not much different than the mall today. It's not much different than the coffee shop today. It's not much different than the stadium today or the theme park. Solomon just became another amenity that people enjoyed on earth because he sought in excess the things God said Trust me instead. You don't need too many horses. I am the defender of your kingdom, not the horse. Remember the psalm says, the king should not trust in the power of the horse, but in the power of God. Do not trust in a strong economy, because a strong economy is just going to make you all more consumeristic and materialistic. And, and, And do not trust in well, sex, our nation likes that too. But um, the marrying of foreign wives was really, it was the position of secretary of state for his kingdom. Because if I marry, let's say I'm the king, and I marry, you're all kings and the nations around me, and I take all your daughters in marriage, you're less likely to attack my nation. Because we're now family and your daughter's at risk. You want my nation to succeed. That's the idea. Solomon is trusting in the strategy of humanity. The tactics of the kings of the earth to protect his kingdom. And is this not what we've seen happening with Christianity? The way that we'll sell out and take the tactics and the strategies of the world Because we live in a fast-paced world, so let's be fast-paced. It's a modern world, so let's update our theology and our practices because those old ways don't work anymore. Our world is reactionary and rash, so let's stop being reflective and patient. Um... The nations come, the outsiders, the seekers, the saying, what does Jerusalem have that we don't have? And rather than bringing them to the temple, whom Jesus said, I am now the temple, I am the walking embodiment of God on earth, and you, my people, are extensions of this temple. So rather than bringing people to the source of God's presence as the answer to which they're looking for, we say, great, we're glad you're here, let's make sure you have a good time first. Let's make sure you're comfortable. You don't like confession and sin? Fine, we won't do that. That'll just be for the, you know, the select few. Um, We need to be careful. We need to be careful that we are not building for ourselves a name, but rather that we're building the temple of God. Solomon did a fantastic job when he built the temple. But there's one more thing, he continued to build in excess. And that was building projects to so make our buildings better and bigger. Notice in 11.7 we read, he started to build other temples. These are rival buildings. Got the temple of God, but yeah, 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 we can have a little options around here. And then if you go back in chapter seven, it gets even more startling. If that wasn't already, I guess maybe that was more startling. This is startling too though. Um, Pastor Mike mentioned last week, this passage and he left it to us to determine whether it was good or bad. So I did my homework and decided it was bad. <laughs> in chapter 7, verse 1, it said Solomon was building his own house 13 years. And he finished his entire house. 13 years building his house. So what? Look at the verse above it in chapter 6, verse, whatever the last verse is, um, 38. And in the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the 18th month, the house was finished in all its parts. And according to all his specifications, he was seven years in building it. Now, house is used twice, okay? His own house and that house. That house is God's house. It's the temple. The, the inter- Intentionally calling it house instead of temple is intentional to put the contrast that what Solomon built as God's temple was a rival to what he was building in his own building, by calling them both house, you see that they are rival buildings. And he took seven years on the temple, 13 on his own. Now, Pastor Mike made the great point, and This is probably, this is good enough. Maybe it took seven years for one because the plan's already there in his own homes. took a little longer because he needed to plan them. Yeah, maybe they're doing a lot of blueprints and how to pass the county codes and all that frustrating stuff, right? Maybe that's the case. That's true. So let's forget the years for a second. And let's just look at how the narrator is telling the story to us. Chapter six, we see the temple being prepared and built, and it said it's seven years he built it. Chapter seven we see that Solomon's building his own house, but then look what it says in chapter seven, verse thirteen. Um well, okay, 7.13. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. What's he calling him over for? To continue working on the temple and his furnishings. What I'm trying to show you here is that Solomon building his house lands smack dab in the middle of the story of his building the temple. Chapter 6 is about the temple. Chapter 7 is about the temple. But in the very middle of this, at the very first part of chapter 7, is Solomon's house. So what do you think is important to him? The narrator interrupts the temple story with Solomon's house to let us know that this wasn't the only house he cared about. The temple was not the only house. He cared about his house. He cared about his house a little too much. He began massive building projects. Let's look at it. Chapter 7, verse 2. Here are his building projects. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. The house of the forest of Lebanon. Read the details. It's amazing and use your imagination. This to me sounds like an entire house in which he turned into an indoor forest setting forth live animals, birds, flowers, towering cedars in this house. Can you imagine walking into this? This is what I can do. I'm a creator. The house, verse 6, he made the hall of pillars. Here's the second building, the hall of pillars. It'd be, be kind of nice to have a bunch of colonnades right there. Let's just build it. Verse 7, he made the hall of the throne, where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from Florida rafters. Later in this, in 1st Kings, I think it was chapter 10, it describes his throne as having an ox head up here and two lions carved in the side and it's all ivory and then overlaid with gold. And then he's got 12 steps coming up to it and he's got lions on either side of the steps. It's art, It's just impressive. You would walk in and have fear of this king. He's building these. So and then fourth, um, fourth in verse eight, he built his own house where he was to dwell. In the other court back of the hall was it was of like workmanship. Solomon also now fifth, he also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom he had taken in marriage. So Pharaoh's daughters like. Yeah, I'm not sure about the granite countertops and the marble floors. I'm not sure about the color of those drapes and the sofa selection. Can you just build me my own house? Sure, hun. Got a few more wives coming in anyways. <laughs> and then sixth building project you saw in his great folly of chapter 11, verse 7. We already read it. He built the high places for, and it names a few gods. So there you go. So, uh, excessive horses, he's multiplying horses, he's multiplying silver and gold, he's multiplying wives, and he's multiplying his building projects. Solomon has lost his center because he's been attracted to and absorbed with the strategies and the consumerism and the marketing values and all of the, this work that the rest of the kingdoms do. He's like, you know what? I could be even greater if I do what they do. But here, do you hear what's happening? He was called to build the temple and that was great and dandy, but then he starts building his own things. And this is just like the Tower of Babel all over again. Let come, let us make a name for ourselves and bake brick and put them together we can make a tower with its top in the heavens. Solomon has a city whose top is the heavens. Yahweh dwells in his city. And yet he kept building because, yeah, yeah, God's name here, but let me make a name for myself as well. And look, the people came. They came to the Tower of Babel, but they were scattered. And they came to King Solomon. It's going to take a lot longer, but you know what's going to happen? If you know your Bible... We're going to get there soon. Israel scatters. They are sent to the corners of the earth because God will not allow us to build towers and building projects to give ourselves a name for ourselves amongst the whole world. Brothers and sisters, we need to be very, very careful that we never get to a place where we become greater than Jesus, but say it's for the sake of the gospel. No, 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 but it's working. It's working for now. You know, it worked for Solomon. It did. He was great. It worked for him. It didn't fall until generations later. And I'm concerned that if the church continues to value worldly values, we're not going to see it right now. In fact, we see a lot of success around, but what's going to happen in another generation? We're already seeing the present youth saying, Who needs church? No matter how flashy the band, how funny the speaker, they're still shrugging their shoulders saying, eh, I mean really, honestly? How foolish should I be if I'm competing with the comedy on primetime on some adult channel? Are you kidding me? that's, That's not... And if Richard tried to compete with you too... He's probably thinking he's not good anyways. But but you know, the example, the examples are out there, like, this is not our place. Yes, we want to be the best we can at what we're called to do. But we do not want to do it exactly the same way. And here's the problem. Here's what happens when we start to treat church like a product that people come and consume, and they have opinions. Yeah, I like this one better. The 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 music's better over there, or they have better seats over here, or they have marble bathrooms over there. When we start to consume church, what we're and when we when we when we encourage the consumerism of church. We are sending a subtle message that Jesus is just another amenity to throw into your life to make you happy. Because this is what the mall does. The mall invites the outsiders to come in and to consume and to feel better. It invites you to do it together. The mall is a place of fellowship. The mall is a place of breaking bread. It has its own communion. The mall has its own altars I mean, we don't have literal altars like the Catholic Church would, but, you know, we have a metaphorical altar here where we bring the worship to God. So does the mall. As you put your sacrifice, your hard-earned cash on the altar, and the priest on the other side of the altar gives you your product in return, your happiness, your salvation. The mall is a temple that has conformed us to thinking we need things that we don't need. And if we're going to continue to model our churches off of the same mentality, we're in trouble Jesus has been relegated. It's Jesus Inc., right? It's Jesus Incorporated. But you can't incorporate Jesus into your life. Jesus incorporates you into his kingdom. I want to propose that instead, we have Jesus Inc. here. Not Jesus Incorporated, I-N-C, but Jesus I-N-K. Jesus Inc., and the ink that he has put all over our Bibles that we're people of this kind of ink because what I did not tell you is that while Deuteronomy 17 told us that the kings could not multiply horses wives and gold and silver it then gave them the one thing that they were to do the one strategy for ruling the kingdom Deuteronomy 17 was this in fact, you, if you if, uh, I'm going to just read it straight from it for you Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. That's the kind of ink that we're to incorporate ourselves with. He shall write for himself a book, in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Not just any law, the one that the scholars, the theologians, the ones who know the Bible say, that lines up with the gospel. That's good stuff right there. And it shall be with him, this, this book, the ink, shall be with him... And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. So that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That was The policy for the king in God's kingdom. Know my word. That's what it takes. God told the king. Do not seek the strategies of the other kingdoms. Horses, gold, silver, and wives. That's not your business plan. You're to stick to this ink right here and you're to know it and you're to let it get inside of you and to conform you and to transform you so that we are not simply consumers of what looks, make, it makes us feel happy, but that we're producers of the life-giving word of God. We're producers of fruit as this gets inside of us. We're producers of the spirit of God and of his way. Now, this is not going to sound very popular, so this is totally metaphorical, but you got to go with it because it works. You want this ink, the Word of God, you want this ink to get under your skin. It's called a tattoo. I know, that's where I lost you. But we do, we want to wear this ink in our skin, in our, in other words, in our bodies. This is not something we just keep in our heads, but we let blessed be the poor in spirit become our hands. We want blessed be the meek becoming our feet. We want the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth to become from head to toe who we embody and what we embody so that people see Jesus in us, so that what people are drawn to is not us, but it's the Spirit of God whom we have let write His law within our hearts, let it get written in His ink beneath our skin. That's the idea. So when people see us, they see Christ, they see His word. Jeremiah 31, 33. Jeremiah 31:33 note it this is a huge verse in the old testament because Jesus quotes it when he gives communion to the disciples what does he say with the cup this cup is the cup of the new covenant and Jeremiah 31:33 says but this is the covenant that I will make so it's the new covenant This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, after they're scattered because they became another tower of Babel. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And if Jeremiah was a young millennial who was writing, if if that's who he was when he was writing, he probably would have said, God is going to tattoo his ink on your skin. That, that's how it would be said in today's wording. When God is going to put his law within our hearts, it means it's going to become intricate intrinsically and intricately a part of us that we are not seeking to incorporate jesus into our lives as just another marketing thing like oh yeah this will solve this problem that will solve that problem i need to go shopping and netflix here and there but i also need jesus it's not that we're not incorporating him into our lives he's incorporating us into his kingdom and his word is drawing us in and he's going to infuse it into our very bodies so that we live these words That's how, that's how we will not be drawn to the things that lure us, that the world offers and all of its products and all of its messages and all of its schemes. You will not be drawn to them if your desires are shaped because Jesus' ink is written within us. This is what changes us and this is what shapes our desires. If we want you to be drawn to Jesus, ink draws And this is what will draw us to him. So, what the church is supposed to be, it's supposed to be a place that directs our desires toward the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of our accomplishments and not the kingdom of our strategies and not the kingdom of our size and not the kingdom of our success. Those are all just really fancy, deceitful, devilish terms for the Tower of Babel. It is this ink that draws, and it will draw us to Jesus and draw us into Jesus, so that we become the incorporated into him. Um, So how are we doing with this? Is the Bible getting inside of us? Or are we just flipping around for that verse that makes us feel good today? You can do that at the mall. I know up here we don't have malls. It's probably not the best example, but the village. Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory. That's a lift. I am filled up, brother. I am filled up. I would think you're talking about the Spirit, but you're not. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the same thing. You go into that story like, I want a little bit of that and a little bit of that, and that's not worth the calories today, but that one is. And sometimes that's how we do the word of God. I want a little bit of this and a little --Oop, the psalm's t- talking about doubt. We sing, "Lord, how long will you forget me?" I love that. We sang Psalm 13. That's the kind of psalm that most people be like, that's, that's for your private devotions. Because we don't want to admit that anybody ever feels abandoned by God. We don't want to admit that. That's the elephant in the room. Sometimes we're not sure if God's around. I'm getting off here, so... Um we how we cannot just we cannot just treat the things that god's given us as a little here a little there and like yep i'm just going to consume this to like get on with my day this this from from cover to cover is meant to be a desire director toward god's kingdom and his values So let's let it get us, let's let it get inside of us. Let's let it, its ink, draw us, tattoo us. Whatever metaphor you like, you just need to understand that this needs to be who we are. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14 goes on to say, and the Word became Flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us is the exact same word for tabernacle when God dwelt with Israel. And that's what Solomon is supposed to bring people to was the temple where God is dwelling among the people. So how do we do this today? We embody the word of God. The word becomes flesh and dwells among our neighbors when we let the scriptures form our desires to live according to God's kingdom. That's the way the incarnation The embodiment, the enfleshment of Jesus is continued on today is when you and I want to say, look at this, and this is what Jesus looks like. And so I pray, I pray that whatever you guys come here for, sounds so rude, I'm sorry, but whatever we are here for tonight, it is not for anything other than we are drawn to Jesus. And that's why we always exalt Teaching and reading from this. That's why we distribute bookmarks with what we're going to be teaching on so that you can not only get my take on it, but you can also hear what God says to you as you read it. This is why we make the messages available on your smartphone through podcasts. And why I do an extra podcast during the week is because we want the scriptures to get into us, right? So let us be drawn to Jesus And I pray that you are drawn to Jesus and that we as a as a people would have the world be drawn to Jesus, not just to us, because then we make the foolishness that Solomon did. Father, we are before you tonight.